This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is the second in our series about domestic violence. I'm going to be talking to Lundy Bancroft about the psychology of male abusers. Lundy Bancroft was a counselor and supervisor for 15 years in programs for men who abuse women. He's also served extensively as a child abuse investigator, custody evaluator, and legal consultant. His book, Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men, is the largest selling book in history on domestic violence. Welcome to Safe Space, Lundy. Thank you, Anne. So, as you know, I'm a trained psychiatrist, and I thought I knew about this before I read your book. And your book really taught me a lot. And I want to start out with the myths. You begin writing about what are the myths of domestic violence. And some of them really got my attention. And I, I, we don't have time to go into all of them, but I want to go into a few of them that feel really kind of in the popular culture. And the most compelling to me was this idea that the man, he just has an anger problem. He just loses control. He can't help himself. If he just goes to anger management, you know, he'll be better. And I'd love to hear you debunk that myth. Well, the the key thing that we learn when we listen to abused women telling the stories of what their experiences have been is that the abuser's mistreatment of her was woven into the relationship in all kinds of ways. So it, it, it wasn't just these eruptions that happened, for example, in the midst of conflict, but his abusive behavior tends to involve all kinds of behaviors that aren't particularly connected to conflict, telling her where she's allowed to go, telling her who she's allowed to see, uh, criticizing her constantly for not doing things good enough. And so if we, if we zero in on his anger, on his response to, to the most heated conflicts, we end up missing really 95% of his behaviors, which are, uh, which are taking all these other forms related to controlling her life, not related to being angry at her. And then the other point that I think is important for people to understand is that we all continue to make choices even when we're really furious. Uh, anger doesn't cause violence. Anger doesn't even cause people to use disgusting language. It doesn't cause people to become threatening. Uh, different people respond in very, very different ways when they're angry. And we continue, even furious, to make choices based on what our values are. So one of the things that really struck me is you said that when you've interviewed abusive men, that many will conf- will admit that there's some point as the conflict escalates when they consciously give themselves the green light to go ahead. And they're, they're not... They're not usually aware of that process until we draw their attention to it. But then when they think back through incidents, then they can remember that moment when they decided, all right, now she's going to get it. Or, all right, now I've had enough. I'm not taking it anymore. Or now this is justifiable. Right. It's, it, 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 they start to set themselves up almost as kind of like a judge and jury. And when they feel like they've collected enough evidence against the woman that she's now deserving of a punishment then they they give themselves permission to go off. So part of what was really interesting, you said in your book that um, the idea is that the behavior is out of control and not deliberate, and that, in fact, in your uh, experience, the behavior is deliberate. The thinking that drives it is often unconscious, but the behavior itself is not unconscious. And I'd love to hear you say more about that. I think this is one of the things that struck a lot of the people doing the early work in this country way back in the 70s with men who abused women is discovering how much method there was to the madness. And 
we hear, for example, very commonly about a man who's just berserk. He's hurling things around the house. He's throwing the woman against the wall. He's, he's, his face is bright red. He just looks insane. And then pop, 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 the police are knocking on the door. And he pulls himself right together. And the police come in, and he's calling them sir and ma'am, and he's uh, speaking rationally, and he's changing the story all around to be about how his wife or girlfriend went nuts and how he's just been trying to manage it as best he can. And sometimes that fits with what police think they're observing because what they come in and see is a, is a very traumatized woman who is, uh, often looks much more upset than he does, is often not nearly as polite to the police as he is because she's furious and terrified. And and the abusers there sort of saying, see, like, see, ma'am, or see, sir, this is this is what I have to deal with. You know, my wife is out of control. It's linked to the belief, the mistaken belief, that the vast majority of abusers have serious mental health problems because their behavior looks so nutty that people think, well, there there must be a huge mental health problem here. So when people see a, a guy who's calm and well put together they think oh well he couldn't be that abusive look he's, he's pulled himself right right together here he must be a he must be a fine guy and do you think that the person so if we, we stay with that example here's the guy suddenly pulled himself together being very polite and respectful to the officer and he's but he's spinning the story around and saying you know he's been managing her she's been out of control in do you think that he believes that in the moment? Do you think that he, he knows that he's lying and spinning it, or do you think he actually feels so justified and entitled that he actually believes his story? Well, it's, it's, uh, I find on a range with clients of mine. Uh, I think to some extent they, they have been selling them, themselves their own propaganda for so many years that they've truly come to believe it. But, but I find under pressure, as I challenge clients about about their behaviors, that to some extent they were aware that they were lying. But still, on a deeper level, they felt justified. They feel like, well, well, if I told the police the truth, then they wouldn't understand what was really... Like, I had to lie to them to help them understand what was really happening. That's sort of how he would rationalize it. Because the abuser's mindset is, you know, people just don't understand how horrible this woman is that I'm, that I'm having to deal with here. And so I'm going to have to lie to them because they don't get what I'm up against. They don't get why I had to be violent to her, why I had to threaten her, why I had to tear her down. This, to me, cuts to one of the core problems of domestic violence, not just in abusers, but unfortunately a way of thinking that spreads out through our society, which is that it's very widespread to believe that women have the magical power to cause men to become violent. And abusers clearly believe this. But I see it spread out beyond the abusers. I deal with all kinds of situations where professionals are responding to the woman in terms of, well, what did you do to get him that mad? What did you do to set him off like that? Uh, Friends and relatives of the abuser or sometimes friends and relatives of the abused woman. You pushed him too far. You got him to, well, there's only so much a man can take. I thought we were past that. I thought there was enough public consciousness to say that a woman is never responsible for a man's behavior. I would love to believe that, too, but we're not nearly past that. And, and I, I run into things all the time in the year 2012 where it's back to, to these sort of opposite ways that we think about men. We think about men as being somehow more rational than women, less driven by their emotions, more able to make decisions on the basis of logic. 
uh, and I'm not saying I buy that, but right. I'm saying that's, that's a widespread way of thinking about it. And then we do an 180-degree about-face and start suggesting that men are the more vulnerable ones. And we're saying things like, well, there's only so much a man can take. You have to understand she pushed him so far. She really hurt his feelings. Well, suddenly, suddenly men are the ones who are incredibly fragile and can just snap, although when they snap, they snap into violence by this model rather than, say, snapping into a, a nervous breakdown. The arguments are constructed based on whatever's useful at a particular moment to let a man off the hook and, and blame the woman. And we are, we are very, very deeply committed in our society to, to women, women blaming. And uh, we've got a long way to go yet, I'm sorry to say, to overcome that. Yes, I mean, I'm aware that people really get focused on what is the psychology of the abused women as opposed to what is the psychology of the abuser, which is all part of sort of can feed into that same idea that it's her fault. That's right. I mean, if we're going to talk about the psychology of the abused woman, the, the only way that's, that's really useful to talk about it, and the only way that's very scientifically based to talk about it, is to talk about the psychology of being abused, because it's got nothing to do with who she was before the abuse started. Uh, the, the, all the research indicates that abused women, on average, are no different from anybody else before the abuse starts. So when, if you're going to talk about the psychology of the abused woman, what you're really talking about is you're talking about the effects of trauma. On, on the human being, male or female. But it, that sounds very different. To say, let's talk about the effects of trauma has a, has a really different effect on your listener, on your audience, than saying, let's talk about the psychology of abused women. It really has a huge, a huge different... I mean, it evokes a lot more compassion right, right up from the start. Right, and it assumes that the problem is in the nature of the experience rather yes. than that the problem is something in the person. Being abused, being terrorized, being oppressed, being held captive will have certain kinds of predictable impacts on males and on females. That's right. And then we get upset when we see the predictable impacts and blame the person for carrying what are the predictable impacts of having those things done to you. So I want to ask you now of another myth about the psychology of the, of the male abuser, which is about this idea that he's very wounded, you know, whether it's that he was abused as a child or he has very low self-esteem or he can't express his feelings and they just come out in this explosive way. There's all this sort of idea that he's so wounded and that's why he acts this way and it, it evokes a kind of needing to care for him as the response. And I'd love to hear you, you debunk that myth. And, and there, there's a mouthful to say about that, but to, to try to keep it down to a few concepts. One is that in our society, particularly in the United States today, we don't talk much about culture. And, and its huge impact on human behavior. We reduce all behavioral problems to being symptoms from people's family of origin experiences, their, their childhood wounds. Even on people who are very wounded, culture is a huge influence. I mean, you can't tell me that somebody who grows up in a completely different part of the world, that, that their wounds lead them to go shoot 16 women in a McDonald's. And yet, in other parts of the world, uh, somebody, you know, a man ends up shooting 16 women in a McDonald's. So the, the culture is obviously having a huge impact on how people's injuries are coming out. So even if you accept that it's a product of injuries, you still have to look at your culture. But then, but then when it comes to men who abuse women, we have to ask even, well, is it even the, the product of their injuries, even with the assistance of culture, and we end up finding that it, the, the, the link to early injuries is not terribly strong. It doesn't hold up very well in research. It doesn't hold up very well in our, in our counseling experience with men who abuse women, where so many of these guys 
including some really destructive ones, don't seem any more wounded than anybody else, don't have a, don't have a, I mean, I've met so many men that had horrific childhood histories that haven't abused women at all. So there's nothing about a horrific childhood history that somehow turns you into an abuser of women. And at the same time, I've had many clients who were horrific abusers of women who came from what seemed like a fairly ordinary kind of childhood and who were having a pretty successful adulthood. Their work life was going well. They were well-educated. They were popular. They were well-liked in their communities. So how do you understand it then? So if you're telling me that culture is important, how is it important? You get this guy who has a regular childhood, according to your idea. How is he turned into a man who would abuse women? Where does that happen? Well, let me propose a parallel. Uh, Without naming any names, we've got countries where abusing alcohol is considered normal way of living where people generally drink every day after work, where their social life revolves almost entirely around alcohol, where they couldn't imagine playing music without drinking or listening to music without drinking heavily, uh, where people who are drunk all the time are sometimes very popular and considered normal in their community. If if you're going to try to analyze what's making these people drink so heavily and abuse alcohol so badly, I'm going to say it's because that's what they've learned is normal behavior from the earliest of ages. And unfortunately, what we have with men who abuse women is the same problem, is that we have attitudes that are, that are so widespread in the culture, and they're better than they were 20 years ago, but they're still and very widespread through our culture, that are the essential training materials for men to abuse women. A boy starts learning from the tenderest of ages, uh, particularly depending on where he's growing up, his neighborhood, his friends, uh, his subculture. He starts to learn that he needs to control women, particularly when he grows up, that he needs to use them, that females exist for sex, that females cause males to become violent, that it's okay for males to cheat, cheat on females but because but, that's men meeting their needs, but it's not okay for females to cheat on, cheat on males and that they should be beaten or killed for doing that. And you're saying that he learned this because he sees it in the newspaper, it's on the radio, it's in the neighborhood, it's, is that what you're saying? He sees it from his relatives, yes, he sees it in movies. Uh, one, of the, one of the prime socializing forces today are music videos. Music, yeah. music, kids spend more hours watching music videos, really, than they spend doing anything else. And music videos are just full of all the messages that I just reviewed That's right. with you. They're rampant in music videos. And... So kids are watching their heroes, the men that they look up to, treating women in these kinds of ways. And it does not break down by race. It does not break down by class. My clients have been from every walk of life, and they've still got this mentality. And by the way, this is another way that I know that domestic violence is not an anger problem, is that my clients invariably hotly defend what they did. If their problem was an anger problem, then they would feel kind of ashamed of what they did. And they feel ashamed for about 10 minutes, and then they hotly insist that what they did was necessary, that she caused it, that it's her own fault, that there's, you can't expect a man to do anything different than what he did given the situation that he was in. So the, the learning grounds are very, very widespread. And then uh, even though it's not a very popular subject, I have to say, and I notice this over and over again in the stories of my clients, that a key learning ground is pornography, and that males are learning from pornography 
very specifically how to use women and how to intimidate them and how to keep them down, how to control them, and to some extent even the specifics of how to use violence against them. Pornography is a huge influence, unfortunately, on how males think about females and how to relate to females. And, of course, the use of pornography is extremely widespread. A $10 billion-plus-a-year industry. Right. And my complaint with pornography is not about the fact that it's explicitly sexual. I have no objection to things being explicitly sexual. But the pornography, as it exists, is, is about depictions of a very particular kind of sexuality, yeah. a very twisted, exploitative, violent, depersonalizing kind of sexuality that's got uh, very distinct links to to violence and to just an overall sort of level of contempt and disrespect towards females. So what I'm what I'm hearing is that so the a boy growing up is exposed to messages kind of on all sides that lead him to believe that uh, he is superior to women that they are not worthy of respect and that it's absolutely appropriate and he's entitled to to control them. And that that is how abusers are made. It's really sort of the the level of cultural influence. And, and unfortunately, we've, although we have made some very significant changes in the last, uh, say, 30 years in how we're raising girls, we've made almost no change, changes in how we're raising boys. Uh, what, what we have done is to allow, make more space for girls to have at least somewhat more of the qualities that used to be considered male qualities, you know, to be more athletic, to be a little more assertive and aggressive, a little more independent. Um, we haven't, and, and, to, and, to, and for girls to learn that those aren't bad qualities, those aren't shameful qualities for a girl to have, it's fine for a girl to expand herself in that direction. We're not changing what we do with boys at all. Boys are still growing up with the view that everything having to do with the female is inferior, that you don't want to have those kinds of qualities. You don't want to have sensitivity. You don't want to cry. You don't want to focus on making your relationships work. You don't want to be vulnerable. And they're continuing to learn that it's okay to devalue females in all kinds of ways, ridicule them, talk down to them, insult them. Uh, I saw a bumper sticker that I just thought was, was just captured it perfectly that said, boys will be men. The message of that bumper sticker is, when you're saying boys will be boys, what you're saying is, we have to accept this kind of behavior in males. There's nothing we can do about it. And these boys are going to grow up to be the, the, the kind of men that they are as boys, if that's what we're going to tolerate and accept in our culture. So we have to not just change the way we raise girls, but we've got to go change the way we raise boys. And that means uh, that we've got to be much more loving and kind and nurturing with our boys but it also means we have to stop letting our boys get away with all kinds of stuff that they're getting away with. So in certain ways, we need to be more loving and kinder, and in certain ways, we need to be firmer and more restrictive with boys, including, no, you don't get to go up to a plate that's got 20 cookies on it with 20 people on the line and take six cookies. And I use that example because you watch how girls are socialized. They got 20 people and 20 cookies. They take one cookie. Right. And a boy goes up there and takes six cookies. Why? Because boys will be boys. Because we haven't insisted as a culture, no, you don't get to just think about you. You don't get to forget what's good for everybody else. You don't get to disrespect other people in that kind of way. You have to be thinking about your responsibilities, and you have to be thinking about what's good for everybody. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. I'm talking to Lundy Bancroft about the psychology of abusive men. And I want to look at, in a relationship, women that I've talked to 
really struggle with kind of where were the red flags, where were the warning signs, how come I didn't see it. There's a deep level of self-blame in being in a relationship that has ended up being abusive. And I, I wonder if you could briefly kind of review, if you were trying to domestic violence proof a woman who was in a new relationship and not sure if she if this was safe or not, what would be the red flags you'd want her to be paying attention to? One, I'm sorry to say, is charm. And we're a society that really kind of worships charm. And, and, uh, and the truth is, charm is, not, is a warning sign. And I'm not saying that all charming people are abusive, but I'm saying that charm, uh, more often than not, is trouble. We look at it 180 degrees the wrong way. We look at it as charm, you know, is two points in your favor, and we need to look at it as charm is two points against you. When someone's putting that much effort into having this smooth, cool, flattering persona, it tends to be because there's something they're trying to cover up. Mm. And then uh, we really need to watch out for jealousy and possessiveness and the, the sort of having to know who you're with all the time and where you are and I, suspecting you or that you're interested in other guys or that you're flirting with other guys. Uh, we often mistake possessiveness for love. Oh, he's behaving that way because he's crazy about me. Well, no, he's behaving that way because he's focused on owning you. And a guy can be completely crazy about you and not be jealous or possessive. In fact, it's rather offensive to all the men who aren't jealous or possessive to take the view that jealousy equals love, because then it suggests that men who aren't possessive and aren't making accusations and, and monitoring their partners like prisoners somehow don't love the woman, which is absurd. Um, you want to watch out for controlling behavior for the guy who just, and he's always got an excuse, you know, oh, well, I was just, I just wanted to show you a good time, or I just, you know, I had a lot of great plans for us. And the the control is one of the top warning signs of who's going to be abusive. When you say uh, control, what do you mean? Give me some examples. I mean, like, uh, not liking it when you stand up to him, getting irritated when you don't want to do what he wants to do, um, uh, not letting you talk, sort of stifling your thinking or, or, or interrupting you, shutting you up, uh, getting all bent out of shape, storming away when he doesn't get his way. Having to have his way would be one good way to put it. Right. Um, any, any way that he's starting to take over control of your life, starting to criticize your friends, or starting to tell you that you shouldn't wear what you're wearing, or starting to tell you that your taste in music is bad, all that, that sort of creeping growth of running your life and of believing that his way is better than your way. I want to ask uh, you now about treatment. I know, I know there's so many more, but I'm going to stop you there. I feel that, that yeah. feels good I get, because treatment seems so challenging. And in your book, you use this really powerful example of the story of a tree. And I wondered if you could tell that story and then make the parallels to uh, how a, an abuser really needs to change in order for the treatment to work. Well, when the, the abuser claims change really often without any real signs that anything's changed. He'll just say, oh, I realized what I did was bad, or oh, I'm not going to be that way anymore. And so what I talked about with that tree image, and I'll describe it, and why does he do that, is to try to help people get concrete about, well, what are your responsibilities when you've done something bad? So in this story, I talk about someone who, in a rage at the way that the neighbor's tree is making it hard for him to garden because of all the shade that it's casting on his yard. He goes off and cuts the neighbor's tree down, and it's a beautiful old, you know, 200-year-old, gorgeous, irreplaceable tree. 
And so I say, well, if he really genuinely feels bad about having done that, if it's meaningful, if it's not just like I'm saying I'm sorry to get you to go away, what would you have to do? Well, you'd have to pay them something like the value of the tree that you cut down. You'd have to buy a new tree to put in there, and you'd have to do the work of putting a new tree in there, which is a tremendous amount of work. Uh, you'd have to accept their right to be furious at you about that for years, because they would be. Uh, you'd, any lies you told about them, you'd have a responsibility to clear up. Uh, in other words, and, and there's more, but the point is you'd have to show in many, many ways over a period of years that you took seriously what you had done and that you were actually going to take the steps to do something about it. And when, when I hear, oh, well, this abuser's really changed, then I want to hear very concretely, well, has he paid her money he owes her? Has he repaired damage to things in the home that he damaged? Has he gone around to all the people that he told lies to about her and told them that actually those were lies and that that's not the truth about her, what he was saying about her? Uh, has he also admitted to other people that she actually had good reason to be complaining about him when he made her look like she was complaining for no reason? Uh, is he actually changing his behaviors? Is he actually starting to listen to her opinions and take them seriously? And what I find, by and large, and, and, and abusers can change, but, but what I find most of the time when there's claims that they have changed, that anyone who applies any reasonable measure of change would find that they have not. And so how is that for you, Linda? You've been working in this field for so long with such earnestness. How is that for you to accept... Because you write clearly that, that some men do absolutely change and really are very sincere and do do all the work, but it remains a significant minority. And I'm curious about what keeps you going in this field. How do you keep yourself motivated to do it? First of all, I don't, I don't see my work as a, as a social service project. I see my work as a social change project. And, and that really helps me keep my spirits up. Because if I'm thinking that my, my ultimate goal is to change attitudes in the society, my ultimate goal is to encourage other men to focus on being good allies to, to women in, in women's rights causes, if I think of my goal as being to change systems of accountability so that abusers are actually held accountable, if I think my goal is to get people to stop criticizing abused women and start to actually understand what they're up against and support them properly, well, then there's a lot, all, in all those kinds of work, there's a lot of success and a lot of satisfaction. It's true that if I just got focused on, am I making this particular group of 12 or 15 abusers change, uh, I'd be likely to come out pretty discouraged. But, you know, people who work in other fields, if you work in substance abuse, most of your clients are going to fail. If you work in sexual offender treatment, most of your clients are going to fail. If you work in weight reduction, uh, weight loss, most of your clients are going to fail. Uh, the truth is that overcoming deep, long-lasting behavioral problems is a really, really long piece of work. And, and in all those fields, whether we're talking about substance abuse or weight loss, we see lots and lots of successes, too. Now, we don't see as many successes in domestic violence, we, in changing abusers. We see some. But we see lots of successes of other kinds. We see women who succeed in, in getting out of the relationship. We see tons of those. We, uh, we see children who succeed in seeing through the abuser and not just buying into his notion that this is an appropriate way to behave in the home. Uh, we see women who may not leave the relationship but are able to use police intervention to make at least his worst behaviors stop. 
So I think we have to think carefully about how we define success and how we define triumph. Uh, and we also, I think, have to think intergenerationally because it's much harder to, to change men who are already hardened into you know a couple decades of abusive behavior and abusive thinking. That's much harder to change them than it is to prevent the production of the next generation of abusive men. That we can do. That we can do by really getting involved in boys' lives, by doing education in the schools, uh, by changing our culture and demanding respect for females. I, you know, on the, on, the, on the cover of my town newspaper today is a lovely story about two boys from a local high school who made a video about stopping violence against women. These are two boys. Oh, wonderful. A 16-year-old and, and an 18-year-old who decide that this is one of the causes that they're going to take on, and they made a prize-winning video. We've got some really heartening signs out there. Lindy Vancroft, I need to say goodbye. I want to thank you so much. You've been a great teacher to me. I've learned from you, and I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure having this conversation. Do you have a website that you can recommend for people? Uh, mine is just lundybancroft.com. Great, and I want to just remind people that the book is Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men. Thank you so much. This is Dr. Ann. I want to thank tonight Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music, Neil McKenty for being my consultant. If you'd like to email this show to a friend or listen to it in, in, in its entirety, go to the website www.safespaceradio.com. You can also subscribe there to get weekly announcements about the show with a link. You can download the podcast from the iTunes store, and you can like us on Facebook. Coming up next is Watchdog. <laughs>